uh, starting tomorrow, tomorrow at 6 a.m., we're calling the church to pray, 6 to 7 a.m. here, Monday uh, through Friday as we get ready for our first revival night uh, in Seattle. We just felt like as a team and uh, as pastors and leaders, uh, if there was ever a time to get prayed up, to get your mind renewed, to get geared up for the fight that's ahead, it's probably the week leading into Seattle. And so we're going to encourage people to come pray uh, here at the church. We'll have coffee provided. That's about it. And we'll have worship teams here, but we're just going to turn this place into a house of prayer. And I've heard it said before, and I think it's true, that the true size of a church is not the Sunday morning attendance, it's the prayer meeting attendance. And so we're just going to call people to pray, and if it works with your schedule, we're going to encourage you to be here. I need prayer, the church needs prayer, this community needs prayer. And I think sometimes it can feel as if like, well, do, do our prayers really change things? Do they really have power? And Friend, I'm just telling you, when people gather to pray, God writes history. And uh, we're going to join him. In fact, the Bible says that, that, that Jesus lives to make intercession on our behalf. And so we're going to join the great intercessor of heaven, King Jesus. And we're going to partner in prayer. And I believe that those prayers are going to prepare the way for what's coming next here for a church and for our community. Then, of course, next Sunday, Sunday night, we'll do four services here in the morning. And then Sunday night, we'll be in Seattle, 6 p.m., on that night, we're releasing new merch. We'll be officially releasing my book on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But more importantly, we're going to be gathering people from the region to worship and pray. And we're believing for another great awakening here in the region. And when, when the world is at its darkest, and when cities are at their darkest, at their worst moments, that's almost always when God decides to break in. And so I know that in, in a lot of ways it feels like, man, why are we going to Seattle? And that's you know, uh, tough ground, and that uh, seems to be like on the polar opposite end of the spectrum of what we're doing as a church, and it's because God is still in the business of reviving dead things, and so revival belongs to the dead. Awakening belongs to the dead, and so uh, we're going to go there, and uh, we're just believing God for some incredible stuff, so please join us. We'll be glad to have you uh, for that whole uh, weekend, and uh, we're believing God for some uh, incredible things. Hey, this morning, I'm going to teach a little bit on the role of the church and the role of the individual as it pertains to spiritual development and growth. And the reason why I'm going to do this is because I think it's important to correct a narrative that often is prominent in the church in the West, which is the church and, and the pastor exist to do all the hard work of spiritual development for me. And uh, in fact, I had somebody joking with me once. I was encouraging them to enter into a life of discipleship and make some hard decisions. And they said, Pastor, that's what I pay you for. And I thought, man, if I could only make those decisions for you, if I could only crawl in your brain or your heart and say yes to what you should say yes to and no to what you should say no to, how much easier this whole interchange would be. But the reality is, is that God has made you in his image and given you this thing called a free will. And uh, he, he has invited you to freely make decisions that not only develop and transform your life, but that honor him in such a way. And, and, and I think sometimes, and even in my own spiritual life, it's, it's so easy for us to desire for other people to do the hard work for us or to blame other people when our life doesn't go in the direction that we want it to. And I feel like if we take responsibility to do our part and then we trust God to do his part, that's what best brings heaven to earth. There is a part for you to play. And if he will be our God, then we will be his people. And together, we will see his kingdom come and his will be done on earth 
even as it's being done in heaven. Let me correct some misnomers about why the church exists. Some people think the church exists to help me make friends. Sometimes people believe the church exists to help me get married. Some of you are beyond help. But anyways, the church exists. That was a joke. The church exists to babysit my kids. The church exists to make sure I'm never lonely. The church exists to create programs and activities to fill up every night of my week. The church exists to give me a tax write-off. The church exists to advocate for my particular political agenda. The church exists to platform my particular spiritual gifts. The church exists to preach on all of my favorite topics and sing all of my favorite songs. But friend, the church exists to glorify Jesus and in doing so, bring people into an encounter with his presence. But hear me, I can't take people where they aren't willing to go because the gospel is by invitation, not by obligation. You know, Jesus had 12 disciples, but he didn't only call 12 disciples. In fact, the Bible records oftentimes when people would come to him and say, I'll follow you wherever you'll go. And Jesus responded, well, what about when a son of man has nowhere to lay his head and, and foxes have holes and, and birds of the air have nests, but, but, but what about me? Are you really willing to count the cost? And, and the Bible often records that people would walk away rejected, not because Christ didn't invite them, but because they weren't willing to take the initiative to respond. And in Matthew 22, in one of the greatest parables that Jesus ever tells, he's talking about the kingdom of heaven. And he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a wedding banquet. And when Jesus uses that terminology, the crowds and the disciples would have leaned in with particular interest because they know Jesus's track record at wedding events. He's the life of the party turning water into wine, the center of attention, the main attraction. But Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a wedding banquet and the invites are being sent out. But maybe the most devastating verse in all of the New Testament comes in verse 14 of Matthew 22. For many are called or many are invited, but few are chosen because few answer the call. And there is a ringing phone in the heart of every believer. And it's a phone call from the Father. And he's inviting you into a lifestyle of development and transformation. And it doesn't always feel good. And it's certainly not always easy. In fact, most of the time, it's the narrow road and the difficult road that leads you in the path you should go that you would never depart from it. But he's inviting us into transformation and development. Many are called, but few are chosen. Today, I want to show you from Scripture the individual responsibilities that we have as believers in response to the great call that we've received from the Father. There are four ways that I believe people view their relationships with others. Three of them are incorrect, and one of them represents the ideal. The first is this, dependent. Dependency says it's everybody else's responsibility to take care of me. But there's something just as dangerous as dependency, and that's independency. Saying this, I am better off alone. 
I don't need anybody. It's just me and Jesus. I don't need any church. I don't need any friends. I can make it in this life alone. No, you can't. Because that's not how God designed you. And it's just as dysfunctional as being dependent. We have dependent. We have independent. But what about codependent? Codependency says this. I primarily belong to dysfunctional one-sided relationships where one person relies on the other for meeting nearly all of their emotional and self-esteem needs. But what's the goal? Interdependent. Interdependent says this, I have a part to play. We are better together. I enjoy being part of a team and I enjoy being part of a family, but ultimately my outcomes and emotional health aren't tied to another person because they have already been settled by Christ. And for us, we recognize that God has called us to this house, not just to receive, but to give. In that free market interchange of spiritual value and ideas by which we bring the ways that we are gifted and created by God, and those help bless and benefit others, and we receive from the way that other people have been gifted and valued by God, and together we gather under the banner of glorifying Him, and in doing so create an atmosphere of His presence which by its very nature transforms people's lives for all of eternity. But it doesn't just happen when I make a decision, and it doesn't just happen when my makes the decision and it doesn't just happen when your small group leader makes the decision and it just doesn't happen when the youth pastor makes the decision it happens when we take individual responsibility to answer the upward call of God which is in Christ Jesus I have a part to play do you know when you stand before God and you give account for your life it's gonna be really hard to point to somebody else for the reason why you went undeveloped well God if you only knew the last seven weeks, that pastor wore a hat when he preached, and I just couldn't receive. God, if you only knew that woman you gave me, that man you gave me, God, if you only knew. But Fred, there's decisions that you and I get to make daily that either move us in the direction of positive spiritual development or move us in the opposite direction of Christological development. And we've got some decisions to make. And the first comes from Romans 12. And in verse 1, where the Apostle Paul writes these words, I beseech you, or I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercy of God, that you present yourself, present your bodies a living sacrifice. Watch. Holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. The first thing that I would encourage you in this morning is this. You have a responsibility, watch, to present yourself. Dr. Mounts says it like this. Theology in isolation promotes nothing more than bare intellectualism. But ethics, apart from a theological base, is powerless to achieve its goals. Paul is taking the rich theology of the book of Romans and now giving it a practical outworking. He is saying this, because God has been so merciful in bringing both the Jew and the Gentile into his salvation plan, now present yourself as a living sacrifice. See, friend, theology apart from practice will dry you up. Practice apart from theology will mess you up. But when you have grounded theology and renewed thinking, it will lead to transformed living. What does it mean to present yourself? 
It means to yield every area of your life to the ongoing development of God's Spirit. It means your patterns, your thinking, your motives and your money, your habits and your attitudes, your proclivities and your prejudices, your family and your calendar. It means every area of my heart I have made available to the work of God's Spirit. And isn't it interesting how as soon as you feel like you've graduated out of holiness and out of discipleship, I have successfully checked all of the boxes, all of my spiritual fruit is fully mature, all of my spiritual gifts are 100% intact, I've got the whole armor of God and no dents whatsoever. As soon as you feel like you've reached that place, the Holy Spirit is really good to shed light on a previously dark area. And he says, son, daughter, there's more room for you to grow. Son, daughter, there's, 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 there, there's another invitation into development. Now, I, I know that you were working on the outside to make sure that's real clean, but what about the motives and, and the thought patterns now of your heart? Can, can I work on those too? The Holy Spirit is really good at walking with us through the process of sanctification as we are daily made into the image of God and in doing so best reflect his redemptive work in our life. Paul says this, it's your reasonable worship. Watch. Costly and sacrificial transformation is the only reasonable response to a God who has so extravagantly loved us. It's not worship until it's sacrificial. Meaning this, it's not worship until it costs you something. There's this odd belief in progressive quarters of Christendom that Jesus was only in the business of loving people but never asking them to change. The truth is, you don't have to change in order to be loved by God, but once you realize how much you are loved by God, transformation is the only reasonable response. And God can't consume what you won't first offer. Some of us are asking God to bless a sacrifice we aren't willing to make. God doesn't bless in theory, he blesses in practice, which means this, give God something to work with by presenting yourself as a living sacrifice. Scripture doesn't just say to present yourself, but in 1 Samuel 30, the Bible tells us the story of David, and David was greatly distressed. For the people spoke of stoning him because the soul of all the people was grieved. Every man for his sons and for his daughters. But David, watch, encouraged himself in the Lord his God. There's a role you play in presenting yourself. I'm going to offer myself to God. Nobody's going to force me to worship. I'm going to make a choice to worship. Nobody's going to force me to give. I'm going to choose to give. Nobody's going to force me to be present, to be connected, to, 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 to live an interdependent life in, in the web of God's community. But, but I'm going to make a choice to do those things. But not only that, I'm, I'm going to take the initiative to encourage myself. You know, I don't know if I would have survived this last season without learning the art of encouraging myself in the Lord. Because sometimes there ain't nothing else that works except putting your head in your pillow and praying in the Spirit until encouragement cloaks you from on high. Sometimes nothing else makes sense. Outside of reminding yourself, I have got a river of life flowing out of me. 
It, it makes the lame to walk and the blind to see. It opens prison doors, sets the captives free. I've got a river of life flow. I'm going to tap into the river that's already there. The supply of God's spirit that he's already placed in my life. Well, I can get encouraged on Sunday and I can get encouraged in the company of two or three, but I'm also going to learn the art of encouraging myself in the Lord so that when I face crisis, I'm not dependent on an accountability partner to pick up a phone. I'm going to sync up with the helper, the paraclete, the spirit of God. I'm going to sync up with a Jesus who makes intercession on my, on my behalf and in doing so, be encouraged in my spiritual walk. Hear me, friend. When David was leading the men on a military campaign, the Amalekites snuck in, raided their houses, and kidnapped their families. It was so bad that the men that David was leading now are turning on him in mutiny and openly talking about killing him. But David finds it within himself to gain courage to face tomorrow. You, in fact, have a deep well if you would only learn the art of drawing from the deposit that Christ has given you. David encouraged himself, not because his circumstances were pleasant, not because the relational dynamics were pleasant, not because he had some brilliant plan to turn this all around, but because even on my bad days, I've got a God who walks with me through fire. I've got a God who declares the waters will not overtake me, the one who heals all my infirmities, forgives all my iniquities, and establishes all of my past. Friend, no defeat is permanent for those who trust in the Lord. Sometimes we want pastors or spouses or friends or leaders to also be all-seeing prophets. You should have known I was having a hard time. You should have known. I'll let you know, just about everybody you connect with in this particular season of life is battling something you have no idea about. You got a lot of people who are just trying to figure out how to tie a knot and hang on and see through for another day. And sometimes we just project everybody else is their responsibility to manage my emotional intelligence and health. And I love when you get that text in season, and and I love when you get an encouraging verse or a word for somebody else who's praying for you or thinking of you, but there will be times in your life where you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, and you've got to learn to draw on what's been deposited in your life. Man, I've got an inner strength. I'm going to stir up my spirit. I'm going to encourage myself in the Lord. I'm going to to change my thinking, change the pattern of my thought life to dwell on the goodness of God. I'm going to make a decision to worship. I'm going to make a decision to press in. I'm not going to make it everybody else's responsibility to manage my emotions. It's like getting in a fight with a spouse or a friend, and, and they say, well, I can tell you're upset, and why are you upset? Well, now I'm more upset because you don't know why I'm upset, and we constantly triangulate making it somebody else's responsibility. But there are things in your heart that if you'll deal with them before the Lord and in doing so, encourage yourself, you can become a well-rounded individual. This wasn't the only time that David would employ this tactic. But when he committed his sin with Bathsheba, his first son dies as a result of judgment. But the Bible says this, David washed his face and went into the house of God to worship. I love the emotion of worship. I respond emotionally to God. I believe we serve an emotional God. Not not emotional in a negative sense, 
or in an unguided or an unbalanced sense. But the way that the Bible talks about God is not like a stoic stone figure sitting on a throne unmoved by the prayers of his people. No, the Bible speaks of Jesus as being moved with great compassion. The Bible speaks of Jesus as he weeps, as he sees the crowds. The Bible speaks of a God who dances over us. And although I love the emotion of worship, there comes a point in your life where you've got to decide to discipline the emotion of your heart. I'm going to engage with God in this season even though I don't feel like it. And in doing so, bring him a sacrifice of praise. Paul says, present yourself. David says, encourage yourself. But Paul writes Timothy in 2 Timothy 1, and he says this, I thank God whom I serve as my ancestors did with a clear conscience. As night and day, I constantly remember you in my prayers. Watch, recalling your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded it now lives in you also. Therefore, I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. In Paul's final letter, he instructs Timothy in this fashion. Knowing that his time was short, he tells Timothy, I am convinced something of value lives in you. Now let me remind you, stir it up. Now, Paul says it was generational because it was in Lois, his grandmother. It was in Eunice, his mom, and now it lived in Timothy. It was generational, but friend, watch. Generational wasn't enough. It was imparted. Paul told Timothy, I laid my hands on you and I gave you something, but impartation wasn't enough. It didn't become sustainable until Timothy took an ownership for what he received and stirred it up until the flame became a fire. It starts when you get prayer at this altar, but it develops as you learn the discipline of stirring yourself up. Here's the question for you this morning. How big is the church in your heart? On this Sunday, we'll have anywhere between 2,000 and 2,500 people gather in this building for Sunday morning worship. But may this church never grow bigger than the church that's in your heart. That means I am stewarding the tabernacle of my life. I'm stewarding the flame that's on the altar of my heart. I'm, I'm, I'm making sure to engage in my relationship with God, not making it somebody else's responsibility to force feed me truth that I won't apply in my life. Anyways, I'm taking ownership for my spiritual development. I'm going to stir myself up. It's like sometimes people come to church, they say, well, I hope the Hope the pastor preaches with enough energy because I'm sure not feeling it today. Yeah, I don't feel it every Sunday either. But oftentimes I'm in the back and I'm praying in the spirit. I'm stirring myself up. I'm saying, God, I know that there's a flame, but now I need your breath on that flame so that thing grows into a fire. I know you're still there. You never leave me. You never forsake me. But God, I want that thing activated and growing and living in my life in more powerful ways. And in fact, we even read this in Jude in verse 20, where scripture says this, pray in the Holy Spirit and build yourself up in the most holy faith. No, Fred, you've, you've got a part to play and so do I. And together as we do those things, it honors the work of God in our life. Not just that, but watch what David says in Psalms 37 and verse 4. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. I love when we quote scripture, but we only quote the second half of the verse that we like. 
Like, God will give you the desires of your heart. Well, you know, Pastor, God will give me the desires of my heart. No, not necessarily. Because the first part of the verse is actually the qualifier. First, delight yourself in the Lord. Because if you'll do that, then you'll desire what He desires. Delight yourself in the Lord. That word delight in the Hebrew literally means this. Stay delicate. Stay delicate. David is the warrior king. The one who slays Goliath and then cuts off his head just for fun. David is expanding the kingdom. He's got blood on his hands. He's the one who rules over the nation of Israel for 40 years and then passes it off to his son Solomon. And David, as he's writing the hymn book for the nation of Israel, his poetic instructions for how they ought to engage with a holy God says this, stay delicate before the Lord. Here's part of the danger of you attending this church is that pretty soon what happens here on a Sunday morning becomes common because you've seen it so many times. But I would encourage you, friend, don't grow casual or callous to the work of God's Spirit in this house because it is special and it is unique and it is not happening everywhere. And I don't say that to somehow give credit to me, but to give all credit to a God who so saw it fit to pour out His Spirit in unusual ways in this season. It's easy just to come to church on Sunday and, oh, it's just another family getting baptized. It's just another person getting saved. It's just another four people who got healed at the end of service. It's just another message from Russell. It's just another worship set from Mike. It's just another Sunday at Pursuit. But why don't you go visit somewhere else in another city for a few weeks? It's special what God is doing here. And the way that we tend to the fire that God is depositing in this house is by never growing common with what is not common. It's supernatural. And in fact, I think that's the saving grace for David's life because so much of David's life reads like a Shakespearean tragedy. As soon as he's having success, what does he do? He self-sabotages, he makes mistakes, he sins, he grieves the heart of God, he screws up, he gets some more momentum, then he screws up again, kind of like you, kind of like me. But he's mentioned as a hero of the faith. Why? I think David's saving grace is that although he had a lot of failures, he stayed delicate in the presence of God. I make a decision to still be moved by what happens here on Sunday morning. I have to. Because as soon as it becomes common, I lose my edge. As soon as it just becomes another Sunday for me, I lose the sacredness of what's happening. Friend, it might be another Sunday for you, but for the grandma, grandpa who's been praying for their prodigal grandson, who's been on heroin for 15 years, who walks his way into this church, lays his heroin at this altar, gets baptized in this tank, I'll tell you what, it's not common for them. For the parent who's been praying that their kids would somehow like church and love youth group and find a ministry that they could plug into and grow and develop in the Lord, who come up to me with tears in their eyes saying, you don't know how much this means to us. It's been an answer to our prayers for the last 20 years in this region. It ain't common to them. No, it's special to them. And we, we make a choice. I'm still going to be moved by what happens here. I'm still going to be moved with compassion. I'm still gonna be moved by the presence of God working here in this environment. I'm gonna delight myself in the Lord. Out of all the things that God could be doing in this hour and the fact that he's doing something special in this place, may it never grow casual for us. 
Finally, the apostle Peter mentions this in 1 Peter 5 and verse 6. He says this, humble yourself under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. One translation says that he may promote you in due time. Here's the reality, friend. You'll be humbled one way or another. But it's easier to take the initiative because pride comes before a fall. It's not just that God dislikes pride. The Bible says he opposes it. He actively stands against it. But the humble find grace. There's some activities that we engage in as believers. Number one, I, I present myself to the Lord. God, I'm here and I'm making myself available to you. You're not gonna have to argue with me. You're not gonna have to hold my arm behind my back. God, I, I'm, I'm just, I'm making myself available for your spirit to work in my life. Not, not just that, God, but I'm gonna take some initiative to encourage myself in the Lord. Draw on the deep supply of your spirit which you've placed inside of me. And not, not just that, God, but I'm going to delight myself in you. I'm going to stay delicate and sensitive to the leading of God's voice. I'm going to stay responsive to the way that you would guide and direct me. I'm not going to harden my heart. I'm going to have ears to hear and, and, and eyes to see. Not just that, but, but God, I'm going to humble myself. Not because it feels good. Not because it's great for my ego, but because it's part of crucifying myself in order to follow you. For unless a man deny himself and follow me, he cannot be my disciple. God, I'm going to take the initiative to do some of these simple things. I'm not going to make it somebody else's responsibility. I know that we have a mutual responsibility to one another because we're a part of the ecclesia, the church of God, and we've all got a part to play. But at the end of the day, when the lights are off and the worship team goes away and the preacher isn't holding a microphone, I'm going to make simple decisions in my room Monday morning to engage in spiritual transformation because it is what I owe God as a reasonable response to what he's done for me. It's not radical to give your whole life to Jesus. It's reasonable. Yeah. It's like sometimes we get these critics and online and these naysayers and they go, man, this sounds like a cult and it sounds like he's just yelling at folks and sounds like he's so intense and sounds like he's saying that, you know, if you want to follow Jesus, you got to give up everything. That's exactly what I'm saying. That's exactly the gospel. That's exactly the high call of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Give everything you have. It's your reasonable service. And friend, let me promise you, it is well worth it. It is well worth it. It is well worth it to reach eternity's shores and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. It wasn't easy, but it was worth it. And if I'll play my part and you'll play your part and together we'll gather to glorify and honor Jesus, then I just humbly believe that to the increase of his kingdom and government in this church and in this region, there will be no end. Come on, friend, would you stand with me as we close? Let me pray for you and encourage you in the Lord. And, and I think that's why this church is thriving. Man, I think that's why God is doing some incredible things here. I look out across this crowd today and I see men and women, moms and dads, sons and daughters, brothers and sisters, people who have said, Pastor, I'm not just going to make it your responsibility to stir me up. I'm going to stir me up too. I'm not just gonna make it your responsibility to encourage me, I'm gonna encourage me too. And together, we're doing the heavy lifting. And together, 
we're seeing God's kingdom come in incredible ways. Now, Father, we give you the glory and the honor. And we thank you for what you're doing in this place. It is exceedingly abundantly more than we could ask or think. And God, now I pray that by your Spirit's help, you would encourage us to walk in the way everlasting. That we would understand, I've got a part to play. I've got a responsibility in my spirit that is reasonable service unto God. God, today we present ourselves to you and we say, by your spirit, continue to do an incredible work both in us and through us. If you will be our God, we will be your people. And to your glory and kingdom, there will be no end. Yeah. In Jesus' name. Come on, all God's people said amen. Amen. Friend, if you're here today and you want prayer before you leave, our altars are open. I'd love to invite you forward. We'd love to partner with you in faith to see God do something incredible in your life. If not, God bless. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll be back here tomorrow morning, 6 a.m. for prayer. If you can, why don't you join us? God's doing some amazing things. God bless.